0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to the 8th chapter of Joshua this morning. Last Sunday we looked at a sad episode in the history of the nation of Israel. There was a man from the tribe of Judah by the name of Achan who took from the defeated city of Jericho some valuables that God had expressly forbidden. His sin led to the death of several dozen of his friends and relatives and eventually to his own execution. And it's a tragic story and made even more tragic because it didn't have to be that way. God had clearly warned Achan and indeed all the nation of Israel that when they obeyed him, he would bless them. If they disobeyed him, there would be terrible consequences. And as always, God was true to His word. Here in chapter 8, we find what happens next. As Lawrence read, God tells Joshua to go back to the city of Ai a second time where they had suffered a defeat, the first battle, but now that they had dealt appropriately with sin in the camp. He told them to take the full army. He even gave them the battle plan, which included an ambush and some trickery. And they were successful, of course. They took the city, burned it to the ground, killed all the inhabitants, including the king, and God was gracious to give them the spoils from that city this time, the livestock, so that they could feed their families. And what happens next we find in verse 30. So let's begin reading there. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. And just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the sons of Israel as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. And just as Moses the servant of the Lord had given command at first to bless the people of Israel, then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them." May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So after the second battle of Ai, God wants the people to learn some lessons, the blessings of obedience and the cursedness of disobedience. So what does Joshua do? Well, he calls a worship service of all the people. Now we think here at First Baptist Keller that we have logistical problems trying to get less than 2000 people a week in a parking place and in a Sunday school class and in one of our three worship services. We don't know exactly how many Hebrews there were under Joshua's command, but we do know that in the book of Numbers it tells us that when they crossed the Jordan River there were just over 600,000 men aged 20 and older. So, if you extrapolate that to include women and children based on the average ratios that we find around the world, the number was easily over two million souls. Of course, this was before the days of cell phones and Facebook. So the communication of important information took some planning. Can you imagine finding a place without electronic amplification where two million people can all hear the same message? Well, that's not too big a thing for God, is it? In fact, He'd already gone before them and prepared the very place. Turn back a few pages in your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. This is one of the last things that Moses did before he died. He was given instruction by God to tell the people what to do once they crossed into the Promised Land. Now remember, he was not going to be allowed to cross, but he told the people what they were to do. So Deuteronomy 11:29, 29, it shall come about, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering, that is to the promised land, once you cross the Jordan River, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not across the Jordan, west of the way towards the sunset, in the land of the Canaanites, who live in the Arabah opposite Gilgal, beside the Oaks of Morah? Here's what God did. He drew them a map. Literally, he said, here's how you find it. You cross the river, you go to Gilgal, You go in the Arabah, and you go west, and you find these two mountains, one called Ebal, one called Gerizim, and then that's where you're going to have your worship service. Now, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are separated by a valley about one mile apart in distance. And it makes a very natural amphitheater. Today, there is a city between those two peaks called Nablus that fills the valley. But the acoustics are perfect. Archeologists, when they discovered this spot years ago, did a lot of experiments, and they discovered if you stood at the midpoint in that valley, you could be heard easily on either mountain point. And so, God had prepared the place for this worship service. But before they read the law, they were to build an altar. In fact, the scripture describes the altar of stones that had not been touched with a chisel. I think that detail is important because it shows that when we worship, we're dependent on God, but He's not dependent upon us, right? When we come to worship the Lord, we are the ones in need, not the Lord. And so uh, we see that very clearly. Now let's go back to Joshua 8. Joshua 8, specifically verse 33, let's talk about this worship service. He gives us some great detail. He says, all Israel with their leaders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark. Now, remember the ark of the covenant signified the presence of the Lord. Wherever they went, they took the ark with them. When they marched 13 times around Jericho, they marched with the ark in their midst. And so, here you have the priests standing on either side of the ark. Half of them, that is the people, stood in front of Mount Gerizim. Now, get the picture. There's a mountain over here and a mountain over here, a valley in between. Half of the people... Six of the tribes on this side, half of the tribes on that side, they are facing each other towards this altar. Just as Moses the servant of the Lord had given command at first to bless the people of Israel, then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read. Now, look at that again, verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. That is, every person in the caravan of people, over two million we take it, was there. Women, men, children, old people, young people, middle-aged people, even those who had attached themselves to Israel, not by birth, were all invited to hear the law read. The scripture says that, when it was read, they didn't leave anything out. They read the blessings and they read the curses. And I was studying that verse this week, my mind kept going back to a scene in the New Testament in the book of Acts. We studied together verse by verse for several years in this room, the book of Acts. And I remember chapter 20, the apostle Paul is coming towards the end of his life, the end of his third missionary journey. He's headed back to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be arrested. The ship stops in the city of Miletus, which is near Ephesus. So he sends words to his friends in the church at Ephesus, the elders, to come and visit him, knowing that this will be the last time that they'll see each other this side of heaven. They, of course, accept the invitation. They come to Paul. They greet each other. It's a very moving and emotional scene. And this is what we read in Acts 20.17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus called to him the elders of the church, and when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Now I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now hear this. This is Paul saying these words to the elders of Ephesus, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now that is the title of our message today, the whole counsel of God. What Paul was saying is, there was nothing that God revealed to him that was profitable to the church of Ephesus that he kept back. Now we preachers are tempted sometimes from not telling the whole story. I think sometimes because we know that you won't like it if we we do. And preachers have the same problem that many of you do. We like to be liked too much. And so we hold back the hard part sometimes or we soften it down or we dilute it a little bit. Paul said he didn't do that. He said there was nothing that he held back from them, good, bad, or ugly, indifferent. He gave them the whole counsel Well, that is exactly what Joshua was determined to do hundreds of years before Paul was ever born. He gathered two million people together and he gave them the whole counsel of God. The Scripture says he didn't leave out a word. And so, if you want to read about that when you get home today, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. And in Deuteronomy 27 we have a long list of curses. God says, if you disobey me at this point, if you commit this sin, here's the consequence. And he goes right down the list. And then he comes to chapter 28. Then he reads the blessings. He says, if you do obey me at this point, here's what you can expect. You're going to prosper. Your crops are going to prosper. And and you're going to uh, live long in the land. God was disposed to bless them, to defeat their enemies and prosper them in the land, but warned them that if they disobeyed, he would send their enemies to conquer them and carry them away. Most of you know that's what happened. Sadly, the people did not obey. They started out, well, they explicitly followed the letter of the law, but it was not just aching that sin over time. We see this pattern of sin we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Remember the pattern? God blesses the people, rather than remaining in obedience and enjoying that blessing, they rebel, they disobey. God calls them to repentance through His men, the prophets, men like Jeremiah, Men like Amos and Joel, but they did not come back. They continued in sin until God sent judgment. He sent their enemies to conquer them. And then, of course, God was gracious to hear them in their captivity and restore them. But that's a cycle we see repeated over and over in human history. God blesses. Man rebels. God warns. God sends judgment. Man repents. God blesses. Man rebels. God warns. God sends judgment, man repents, God restores. This is the cycle we see throughout the Bible and indeed all of human history. Remember, these things were written down for our benefit. What can we learn from Joshua chapter 8? Well, there's three things that I've listed today on your outline. Number one, we, we have several principles at play here. Let me just give you three. Number one, it's always good to trust and obey the Lord. It's always good to trust and obey the Lord. We, we sing a hymn around here like that. Trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's a simple principle, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. Clear principle of Scripture. There's another principle, really two and one. Two and three go together. There is blessing and obedience and there is pain in disobedience. Adrian Rogers, preacher from a past generation when he was preaching the Ten Commandments would say this, when God says, thou shalt not, he's saying, warning, hot, don't touch. And when he says, thou shall, he's saying, help yourself to happiness. God says there's blessing in obedience, there's pain in disobedience. But, but listen, this is not the prosperity gospel. He's not giving a blanket promise that if you are a man or a woman of faith, you're going to have a pain free existence. You're always going to have plenty of money and you're going to live a sickness free life and die at the age of 120 in your sleep. That is not what he's promising here. He's just giving a principle of scripture that there's blessing in obedience and pain in disobedience. Now we've been studying On Wednesday evenings here, the 19th Psalm this summer. It's a very blessed Psalm. It's what God's Word says about God's Word. And in verses 7, 8, and 9, he gives us this description of the benefits, the blessings of not only reading God's Word, but obeying God's Word. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In those three short verses, we have six descriptions of God's Word. What God's Word says about God's Word. First of all, He gives us titles for God's Word. It's called the law. It's called judgments. It's called precepts. And then He gives us the description or adjectives to describe God's word, perfect, pure, clean. And then he gives us effects or results, benefits of God's word. And the most important is right there in chapter seven, the law of the Lord restores the soul. It shows us how to be saved. This is what David said in the 23rd Psalm, speaking of the Lord as a good shepherd, he restores my soul which is implying something's wrong with his soul. And of course it is. David was like all of us. He was a sinner and he needed forgiveness. And, and so th- those are the basic principles that uh, God sends blessings when we obey and sends pain when we disobey. But, but secondly, there's a problem. And it should be obvious to you. And that is this, the problem with that principle that God Blesses those who obey. Is this? Nobody does. Nobody does. Not perfectly, at least. That's why Romans three twenty three says, "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." God knew these people were not any different than you and me. They were going to disobey these laws. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy twenty eight. You don't have to wait to get home. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth." How many times, when they were in Babylonian captivity, must have they thought of that verse? If you fully obey the commandments of the Lord, I will raise you high above all the nations of the earth. That was a promise from God to them. Of course, they didn't fully obey. And here's a little secret. They didn't even begin to obey. It's not that they missed it by a hair. They missed it by a mile, like all of us do. And so here's what I want to say about that to help you remember. I want you to think for a moment. Put in your mind's eye an image of the best person you know. Whether you've lived 10, 20, 30, or 80 years Put in your mind right now the person you believe exemplifies a Christ-like life. Just have them in your mind's eye. Let me tell you something about that person, whoever it is. They're a sinner. Now, here's the other side of that, which is more obvious. Think of the worst person you know. If you can't think of anybody, just use me. It'll, It'll do. That person's also a sinner. But here's the third truth. Everyone in between, the best person you know and the worst person you know are also sinners. That's what it means when it says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. That's a problem. But it's not a problem without a solution. The Lord sends us the law, doesn't he? You ever thought about why God gave the Ten Commandments? Why he gave the law? Why do we have law today? Well, it's because of our sinfulness, isn't it? If there was no sin in the world, we would not need law. We wouldn't have to tell people not to kill each other if there were no sin in the world. But because there is sin in the world, we have to put boundaries. We have to have rules or else this world would be total chaos, as bad as it is. At least it's held in check a little bit by rules. Here's what I mean. Let's say in uh, 45 minutes or so when I quit preaching that, uh, that's a joke by the way. Time to go home. Everybody runs out of the parking lot, turns on their ignition, they're racing the Methodists to Spring Creek Barbecue. What if there were no rules? What if there were no stop signs? What if there were no lanes of traffic? What would happen? We'd all kill each other, right? So that's why God is gracious, the Bible says, to ordain government to give us laws. That's one purpose of the law, is to keep us from killing one another. Two... He gave specifically the ceremonial law to the Israelites to distinguish them and to set them apart from the pagans. He gave them specifically circumcision as a sign that they are distinct and different and set apart from the others in the world. But those two things are not, according to the New Testament, the primary purpose of the law. That's found in this same Third chapter of Romans where we find Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 is the obvious problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But back up to verse 19 and you'll see the purpose of the law. This is what Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So if someone asks you, what's the purpose of the law? You point them to Romans 3.19, which says, the purpose of the law is to shut you up. That's what it says. So that every mouth would be closed before God. Because God knows how prideful we humans are. And you might have even heard someone say this. I have a couple of times in my ministry where someone confronted with the gospel will say, I'm not a sinner. Because in their mind's eye, a sinner is someone who's worse than they are. A sinner is someone who has committed some felony or on death row in the prison. They're not a sinner. They're a good citizen, they think. How dare you call them a sinner? A sinner, according to Paul's definition in Romans 3.23, is anyone who falls short of Perfection who fails to miss the mark of God's holiness, which as we all know is perfection, falls into that category of sinner. One day we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account of our life. And Paul says we have the law to close our mouth. We don't have a defense before the Lord. We're all guilty. And it's what I say often here when I give an invitation at the end of the sermon is to be saved you have to come to God on His terms, which means with empty hands and outturned pockets. And I need to add a third category and a closed mouth. That is, you don't have anything to leverage with, to negotiate with. You're coming in a, in a spirit of submission and contrition and humility. That's the person that the Lord saved. And it's the purpose of the law to bring us to that point. The law is a mirror to our souls. Most of us have mirrors in our houses. What's the purpose of the mirror? Well, it tells us when we need to comb our hair. It tells us when we need a bath. It tells us when we've got something on our face that needs to be wiped off. But does it have any ability to do, it, to do any of those things? Can it comb our hair? Can it give us a bath? Can it wash our face? No, it simply points out the fact that we need to do those things. That's the purpose of the Old Testament law. It shows us we are guilty before God and points us to Jesus. And that, friends, is the third point, the solution. We have principles. We have a problem about the principles that we don't keep them. And third, there is a solution. Remember I said this problem has a solution. And God here in Joshua 8 gives them a picture of what the solution is before they read the law, what did he tell them to do? Build an altar of uncut stones. That is of stones they just found that no man had chiseled or formed in any way. Piled them together, put plaster over them, and then they did what you do on altars. What do you do on altars in the Old Testament? You sacrifice animals. And they sacrificed animals. They killed animals and burned them before the Lord. Now, we know according to the scripture that the blood of bulls and goats has no power to forgive sins, does it? Every animal that was killed under the old covenant was simply a foreshadowing and a prophecy that pointed into the future towards the once for all sacrifice that was efficacious we say in theology class, and that is who? The Lord Jesus. So, when John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, is out there in the wilderness, preaching and baptizing, he looks up and he sees Jesus walking towards him. He says, Behold, look over there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of human history up until that moment had been leading up to that event, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as the acceptable sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice as we said last week, on the cross who would one day come from Joshua's perspective and die for the sins of the world. Now what's the difference between the Old Testament saints who were there at the altar that day with Joshua and and those of us who are gathered in this room today? It's just this. The Old Testament saints looked forward chronologically, ahead in time as it were, towards the cross and now we are 2,000 years on this side of the cross. We look backward at the cross event. But all of us who are saved are saved by grace. The grace of Christ. That gift of salvation which was purchased there on the cross. That's why I tell you all the time that the Bible is about Jesus. This is not this summer hero worship of Joshua. This is how God used a man who was a sinner, Joshua, to point people to Jesus. And we all need, as Joshua gave the people that day, the whole counsel of God. Do you remember what he did after he sacrificed the animals, pointed them to Jesus? Put half of them, six tribes over here on this mountain, which represented the curses for disobey. Put half the tribes over on this mountain, which represented the blessings for obeying God, and they went back and forth reading. And you know what the Bible says? Every time they read a curse or a blessing, what the people did? They said, Amen. It's okay to say amen in church. It's biblical. And and what we're doing when we say amen, what they were doing that day, they were giving verbal assent that what they read, they understood they accepted and were now responsible for. And so God would say, if you do this, I'm going to kill you. And they said, amen. We understand. Got you loud and clear. And that doesn't mean they kept it. It just meant they understood it. We need today the whole counsel of God, the blessings and the cursing. Not, not friends, just the part that gives us the warm fuzzies. All of us love the warm fuzzies, don't we? Everybody loves to go go, go to church and sing your three favorite hymns. And then the preacher tell you, we're all going to heaven, and you go to lunch and have a wonderful lunch. You say, what a great day it was. What great preaching that was. Not not always so much when we talk about sin and judgment and, and righteousness. But remember I told you that when I was a young preacher, the great burden of responsibility I felt lifted off of me when I came to understand that it was not up to me to save anybody. That only the Spirit of God can do that. And this is what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John 18. He says, uh, it's the job of the Spirit to do the convicting and the saving. And he says, and he, speaking of the Spirit, when he comes... Will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That is, that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict a person of their personal guilt, that is sin, and righteousness, that is the righteousness of Christ, which they lack, and the judgment of God, which surely will come into their life. But, but here's an equally true proposition Yes, it's up to the Spirit to convict and to save. But God in his sovereignty has chosen the means of preaching, proclaiming the gospel to be the means by which that conviction and salvation is accomplished by the Spirit. Now that's an amazing truth. Boggles the mind. He could have chosen any means necessary, right? Any means at his disposal, which is everything. He's God after all. But he has chosen what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of preaching. Let's just turn there now and close with that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember Paul is writing this letter to another church this time, not Ephesus, but Corinth. Corinth, of course, was a very wicked city. It was a center of pagan worship, but it was also a center of learning. Philosophy. Many of the people of Corinth thought they were very wise. Thought they had kind of figured life out. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul disabuses them of that notion. 1 Corinthians 1 21, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. So the wisdom of the world is philosophy. Why are we here? How do we get here? Where are we going? But Paul says as great as the philosophy of the Greeks was they failed to answer one fundamental question, and that is how to be made right with a holy God. How to know your creator. And he says, so for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So Paul says God didn't use Greek philosophy to get people saved. He says he used what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. Now he's not talking about foolish preaching. There's plenty of that going around. When he's talking about the foolishness of preaching, that's how the Greeks viewed this simple message that the Creator left the glory of heaven, condescended to become one of us, not born into a royal home in palaces and purple robes, but as a baby, born to a virgin, lived in a poor home, lived a sinless, perfect life, allowed himself to be abused, And then went to the cross and died in the place of sinners like us. The Greek philosophers thought that was foolishness. That's crazy. But Paul says that's the message, the means, the vehicle God has chosen to save sinners. He says Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach what? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those, hear this. To those God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human wisdom. And we got a lot of problems in the world. Right? I mentioned Adrian Rogers earlier. He's dead. But shortly before he died, I went to hear him preach in Nashville, Tennessee. And he got up to preach. He didn't mention his cancer. He was obviously dying. He got right to the text. And this is what he said. And he was preaching, incidentally, to about 8,000 preacher boys. And he said this, Men, the world's in a mess, but there's not a problem in this country and in your churches that would not be solved if you'd go back home and preach, thus saith the Lord. That is, the whole counsel of God. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, what? In season, out of season. When people want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. That's what the word says of itself in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That's why we need all the Bible. The whole counsel God let's pray now Heavenly Father Lord we thank you for your word today thank you for Joshua a man who did not compromise he didn't leave out one word of what Moses told him to say he built the altar exactly according to your specifications and he read the law according to your specifications he was faithful Father, I thank you for Paul who did the same in the New Testament context. I thank you for faithful men and women throughout the 2,000 years since the cross who have continued to preach the whole counsel of God. May that always be true at First Baptist Keller. May we never leave anything out because it's inconvenient or it causes us to be unpopular. May we never soften anything because we think it will draw a larger crowd. Help us to be faithful because we know your word is what we need. It restores our soul. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to convict the world of sin and judgment and righteousness. Thank you, Father, that you have used what the world calls foolishness to glorify yourself. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.